It has been called the most difficult step in the plan of salvation. Now, some may disagree with that, but when we understand the concept properly, I think it is a correct assessment. It is the step of repentance. It's the process of repentance. We've all read Acts 2.38 multiple times, probably countless times, basically, where people on the birthday of the church asked Peter, what are we supposed to do? And Peter responded with those words, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And quite often, we, we spend our time thinking about that verse and thinking about the step of baptism. And of course, it is there, it is necessary, it's important. But that very verse makes it clear that one is not even a candidate for baptism unless he or she has already repented. It is just as vital, just as important. And baptism, as important and as, invi- as vital as it is, is a one-time act. While repentance is something those who are Christians must do from time to time. Because, as Paul would write in Romans chapter 3, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. Each of us who are Christians at times will step out of the way we should walk. And our hearts will be convicted by that and we need to return to God in faithfulness. But what exactly is repentance? And what is it that makes true repentance so difficult? Well, the word repent, basically, at its most basic level, just means to change. You've heard it defined probably before as a change of mind or a change of attitude that leads to a change in action. That's what repentance is. And so what makes repentance difficult at its most basic level is it goes against something we don't like to do. We don't like change. We, we don't like to change at all. If you don't believe me, just try to sit in somebody's seat on Sunday morning. They don't like to change, right? We, we don't like that idea at all. But also, it's very difficult because I have to admit I've been wrong. How many of us like to admit I, I was wrong? I was unwise. I made a mistake. We, we don't like to think about that. We don't like to admit that we have gone our own way and not God's way. But sometimes repentance is also difficult because we, we think, we know it's not true, but, but it's easy to get in our mind that repentance is basically just saying a few words, sort of saying I'm sorry, without even really meaning it or changing anything on the other side of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul said, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Notice from that one verse that repentance is a product of, It's more than grief, but grief leads to it. It's a product of something that convicts us. It's godly grief. We're convicted that we've done something against the will of God. And that leads us to repentance. This morning, I want us to think about that scripture that Mike read for us a few moments ago from Psalm 32. And I want you to have your Bible open to that particular psalm. And in fact, we're going to use just one verse this morning for most of our lesson. We're going to use a couple of verses here and there for context. But if you'll look at Psalm 32 and verse 5, you're going to have the outline for our lesson right there in front of you. Because in that one verse, Psalm 32, verse 5, David lays out for us the process of what real repentance looks like. Scholars are not 100% sure as to when Psalm 32 was written. But there's a leading guess that's very interesting. You remember one of the most infamous accounts in the life of David, probably the most infamous account, is, of course, his sin with Bathsheba and all the cover-up that went along with that. And most of us know that following that sin, and once he had been confronted by that by the prophet Nathan, he wrote Psalm 51. That's the psalm that includes words like, Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Those famous verses. But scholars suggest that after a little bit more time had passed, David also wrote Psalm 32. 
that Psalm 51 was written in the basically immediate aftermath of that particular sin. But that Psalm 32 was then written with the perspective of time. As David looked back on the entire ordeal and what all happened, with some perspective of time, he penned these words. Even if that's not the context, though, for sure, David is looking back on some particular sin in his life, but with the perspective of time, the perspective of forgiveness and what has happened since then. But most suggest it's sometime after that sin with Bathsheba. And in the middle of that psalm, he writes an outline for us for what repentance, true repentance, involves. Number one, true repentance involves a recognition. I cannot repent if I don't recognize my wrongdoing. And so in the opening line of verse five, David said, I acknowledged my sin to you. Even the apostle Paul later would write, you remember in Romans chapter seven, that he didn't even know what it meant to covet. Had the law not said, thou shalt not covet. He wouldn't have understood the concept if the law had not pointed that out to him. But he had to acknowledge that sin. David said, I acknowledged my sin to you. The word acknowledge here means to know. It also can mean uh, to teach to know. It's a word that has a very uh, intimate knowledge tied to it. David is saying there was a deep sense of knowledge tied to my sin. Obviously, for us to know what is and what is not sinful, there has to be right and wrong. But there also has to be a standard. Even though our world might not want to say there is a standard for what's right and wrong or what's righteous and evil, we know that there is such a standard. In reality, that standard is God himself, but he has revealed that standard through the Bible. We sometimes talk about the fact the Bible is the standard of right and wrong for Christians. That's only partially true. The Bible is the standard of right and wrong for all people. Whether they ever admit it or not, whether they ever acknowledge it or not, God's standard is the same. It is scripture. It delineates what is right and what is wrong. And since the Bible comes from God himself, it is his revealed will to mankind. And we will all answer. Every person will answer for how he or she has either obeyed or not obeyed what is taught in the pages of Scripture. But sometimes we can think about that and only think of an out there kind of thing, making sure that everybody hears the truth. And while that's certainly needed, the Great Commission is still there. It's not a great suggestion. It's a great commission for us to do. But I need to ask myself in a very personal way, when I am confronted with something in Scripture that either God says to do and I'm failing to live up to it, or God says to avoid, and I have been involved in it, what's my reaction? How is my heart touched, or is my heart touched? Do I really see that I have fallen short of the glory of God? Or do I do as many do? I'll try to justify it away. I'll try to make excuses, or I'll try to say, well, God didn't mean that for me, or God just meant that for the church at Corinth way back then. He didn't mean it for now, or God just meant that for Christians in the Roman Empire. He didn't mean it for now. I need to acknowledge my sin. I need to realize there is a standard. It takes an open heart, but also takes a listening ear. I cannot repent and further conform to the will of God If I am not taking in the word of God deeply and regularly, that concept that Paul would talk about, about studying to show yourself approved to God, ends with that idea of not being ashamed. Oh, we'll be ashamed when we realize that we have sinned, but the shame will not continue because we'll turn from that sin. Repentance, true repentance, involves a recognition. True repentance also involves a revelation. 
At some point, we have to open up about sin for that to be real repentance. And so David writes in the second line of this verse, I did not cover my iniquity. There's an interesting wordplay that David uses here in this particular psalm. The King James puts it better, really. But it's interesting that in verse 1 of Psalm 32, in most translations, you have the word covered at the end of that verse. And here in verse 5, you have the word cover. King James has hidden at the end of verse 1. But there's two different words translated covered in verse 1 and cover here in verse 5. The word in verse 1, I actually mentioned on Wednesday night a few weeks ago, is a, was a business word. And the reason it was a business word was it was an idea of someone owed a debt. And of course, in that ancient culture, a stone was taken and that debt was carved into that particular stone. You owe me this much. But then when that debt was paid, wax was poured into those etchings and then the stone was smoothed out so that that debt was not seen anymore. That's the idea behind verse one, whose sins are covered. It's as if God looks at that stone, if you please, and doesn't see anything anymore because the sin has been covered up. The etchings have been filled and wiped clean. But the idea in verse five, I did not cover my iniquity, is a word that literally means a concealing. I did not conceal my iniquity. I mentioned to you at the beginning of the lesson that some suggest that Psalm 32 was written after David's sin with Bathsheba sometime later, again with the perspective of time. If that's the case, we know exactly what David had in mind when he wrote these words, don't we? Think about all the concealing, if you will, that David tried to cover up that one sin. Bringing Uriah home from the front lines and trying to have him go and sleep with his own wife to cover up the pregnancy. And then when that didn't work, sending Uriah right back out on the front lines and basically saying, let him be taken out. Uriah carried his own death warrant. And even possibly, David then has in mind just not saying anything about it. Just let time pass. Surely time will, will heal all wounds here. That It'll get covered. After all, I'm the king. I can get away with whatever I want to. And so time will just pass and it'll be concealed in that way. Think about that web of deception that David put in place to cover up one sin. And yet David says now, I can't do it anymore. I did not conceal. I had to reveal it. I had to let it out. Is that ever a temptation for us? How often can we try to fool a lot of people? And we can fool a lot of people. Sometimes we build defenses around a particular sin. Sometimes we build lies to cover up sins. Sometimes it's simply because a sin is more secretive in nature, so we just don't tell anybody about it. The, the cover-up is more just, I just don't tell anybody. I just hold it in. I'll take care of it. I'll deal with it. I'll, it's my own thing. It's nobody else's problem. It's nobody else's issue. We may be able to cover a sin from every person on the face of the earth. But all of us, me included, need to hear this. We never hide a sin from God. Even a secret sin, even something nobody else knows, even a sin that's, if you please, just mental or, or something that's, that's just in our mind, something that's just in our attitude that we cover up in some way. Hebrews 4, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his that is God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing is hidden from God. However well I may think I'm, I'm hiding or covering sin, God knows it all. 
But also, think about this concept of trying to cover it up. How often do we build these these webs of trying to cover things up and it makes things worse than they were in the beginning? How often do I have to think about what did I tell to who to make sure that, that I don't get, get found out? I, I told this person this story. I told this person this story. So I've got to make sure I continue that storyline with this person, that storyline with this person. Oh, and by the way, make sure those two people never meet and have that conversation. Does it hurt for a while when a sin is revealed? Absolutely. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But how much more freeing is it to not have to know to have to no longer wonder about that web of deception? To simply to be able to speak the truth. And to not have to try to cover our tracks all the time. To cover up a storyline, to cover up that storyline, and just live life. True repentance involves a revelation. I'm no longer going to conceal this. I'm going to let it out. I'm going to speak it to God and Possibly to others as well. Number three, true repentance also involves a relation. Or you might, if you're marking Bible, you might write the word relationship. Either one is fine. In the third line of the poem, David said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Now you may be wondering, how in the world is he getting the word relation out of that line? Other than the fact that everything starts with the letter R. This is not just a play on words. It's because of what the word transgression means in this particular verse. The word transgression, excuse me, the word confess, I should say. The word confess literally means to throw down or to cast beside. What David is saying here, and notice it's confessing to the Lord. What David is saying here is, I now see in a proper perspective that I must cast this part of my life to the Lord. It's a change in relationship. In reality, it's that relationship coming into clearer focus. That I understand that. Even though this is sinful, even though this is wrong, I'm even going to cast that before God because He's the Lord and I'm not. In reality, what David is saying is, I'm no longer going to try to be the captain of my own ship. Even the stuff that, that draws me away from God, I'm going to cast that before Him so that I'm drawn ever closer. Sometimes, in fact, if I may suggest this all the time, for true repentance to take place, it means that I must let God take over the wheel of my life and say He's in control. He is the Lord. I'm not. I'm going to relate to Him in that way. Or better said, I'm going to let Him relate to me in that way. The word transgressions here, your Bible may do this, but if you mark in your Bible, put this out to the side, because the word transgressions here literally means rebellion. Rebellion. What David was saying is, I now confess that what I have been doing was open rebellion against the Lord. And even some of those things were unknown by other people. Some of those sins. But even those are rebellion before the Lord. When I understand excuse me, that every sin I commit is a rebellion against God, would that not motivate me to avoid sin at all cost? I don't want to be known as one who rebels against God. But every sin, every transgression, to use David's word, is just that. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 
speaks of Jesus as being the founder of our salvation. But some of you, when you were children, maybe memorized that verse from the old King James. And I love it. And I wish other translations put it because the King James version there puts that Jesus is the captain, the captain of our salvation. That's in many ways what David is saying here. I am no longer going to be the captain of my life. God is. It's a change in relation. Now, all three of those things we've looked at so far, the first three lines of this verse, Psalm 32 and verse 5, are very difficult when they're properly understood. It means I am admitting I have not been been living right. It means I am giving up control of my life to the Lord. It means I'm allowing God to be in control. None of that is easy. But aren't you glad there's a fourth line in this verse? And so David ends the verse by reminding us that repentance also includes a reaffirmation. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Some translations, the New American Standard among others, I prefer because it says you forgave the guilt of my sin. The reason I prefer that is that's how you and I would say it. God forgave the guilt of our sin. Look back in Psalm 32 at the previous verses that Mike read for us a few minutes ago. Because David had been writing about the way in which this sin had and this attempted cover-up had been eating away at him. Verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Obviously David's writing in poetic language there. But David is saying that's what it felt like. And trying to cover all this up and having my my conscience gnaw away at me. It's as if God's hand were pressing down upon me. It's amazing how sin can do that. How trying to cover up sin can do that. Even our bodies, physical selves can be harmed. How many people turn to other sins to try to cover up some sin? Maybe, Maybe drugs or alcohol or something else. But even if it's not that, how many times can our lives be affected in even physical ways by trying to cover up sin? And trying to live a lie, as we often say. But even if it doesn't go that far. In other words, even if it doesn't affect us physically. Sin affects us. It affects us in relationships. It affects us in our thinking. And ultimately, it ruins our soul. But aren't you thankful that this fourth line is in the verse? As bad as whatever David had in mind was, whether it was with Bathsheba or whether it was another sin in his life, as bad as whatever it was, David said, once I confessed it, once I let it out, once I said, I'm no longer going to be the captain of my ship, he had absolute trust. God will forgive the sin. God will forgive the guilt, the iniquity of the sin. Once we've been forgiven by God of a sin, Any guilt we feel associated with that sin is man-given, human-given. It's either guilt that we bring upon ourselves or it's guilt that some other person brings to and sometimes legitimately because they've been harmed. And sometimes the guilt we bring is legitimate because there are continuing consequences. Will God allow us to continue to have consequences based upon our sins? Sure. Think about David. If this is a sin with Bathsheba, the consequences ran for the rest of his life. But the guilt, God says any guilt is not from me. Is that not amazing? Does that make you love God even more? 
that God is not going to bring the guilt back. Because once the sin is forgiven, the sin is forgiven. Tie this back to verse 1. Once that stone, the dead on that stone has been covered, it's covered. It's gone. So David says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We need that reaffirmation in our lives. I would suggest most of us in this room are Christians. And if you feel the way I feel, we know the Bible. We want to please God. We want to be holy and obedient and all those good religious words. But we also know how far short we fall. We know at times we mess up. We know at times we're not living the way we should be. And we think, I just can't get there. And sometimes we just feel guilty because we can't live up to whatever standard we want to think about. The standard of Scripture, the standard of Christ, or whatever it is. But God says, when you repent, any guilt you feel is on yourself. It's not from me. Because God forgives. And God removes the guilt. Don't you need that reaffirmation in your life? Isn't that amazing? Isn't God wonderful? It's a song we used to sing when I was a kid. You may remember it. I don't know. Honestly, when I was a kid, I'll be honest with you, I didn't like it. I, I thought the song was a little bit, you know, the music was a little bit strange. If you like the song, no offense, I just didn't like it when I was a kid. I like it now. Maybe because I'm old. I don't know. But I, I liked it. didn't like it when I was a kid. But the words were fantastic. The first verse in the chorus say this. Christ, the dear Lord, glorious Lord, speaks to us gently by his great word that is our light each day. Tell us the way, glorious way we may reach heaven if we believe, if we repent, if we obey. Did you repent, fully repent of your past sins, friend, when you confessed his name on high? Did you believe, fully believe on his name, great name then? Or was a doubt, treacherous doubt lingering nigh? Did you obey all the way what he commanded? Things in his word were told to to do. Did you confess, fully confess, Jesus the Savior? Did you repent? Did you believe? All the way through. It's that last line, those last four words, that I think give that song its power. Did you repent all the way through? You see, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's not even just changing some actions. It begins with an understanding of the standard. It continues by saying, I am no longer going to try to take care of this by myself. I'm turning this over to God. I'm confessing it to God. I'm opening up about this to God. And I am saying, God, you are the Lord, not me. But once I've done that, it also says, God, I accept your forgiveness. Did you repent? Truly repent all the way through. If you haven't, God has promised to forgive if you will. Because He's a good, loving, gracious God. 
who longs to forgive and longs for that relationship with you. If that's your need this morning, we invite you to come or we stand and sing to encourage you.